Hey friends, hey, and welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinion. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, create a profile and log in. There you can find the episodes in a more searchable fashion. You can also post questions about the various topics that we've discussed, as well as new topics that you'd like to hear discussed. On the website, you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter that will highlight the current episodes. Most importantly, if you would like to be interviewed on the podcast or know someone you would like to hear from, please email me at grantstuckey at gmail.com and I'll get that arranged. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Vladimir Polyakov. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in the Beverly Hills area. Vlad, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Grant. It's a pleasure to be with you. And to just add something, I've been practicing in Beverly Hills since 1993. And in 2015, I acquired another practice in the Valley area of Los Angeles. So now I have two locations. Very nice. That's awesome. Well, good. I um, appreciate you being willing to do this. And you kind of reached out to me and we were going back and forth with emails. But it sounds like you've listened to the podcast and you also have, I think, a lot to contribute. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. Thank you. I listened to you for a number of months now and I learned a lot from you and from your guests. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> that makes me happy. Well, good. My first question is if you can just Give us a brief history of your training and kind of your current practice setup. So I graduated from Dundon School at UCLA. I also got my bachelor's degree from UCLA and I stayed on and I got my oral mixofacial surgery training also at UCLA. So I'm a Bruin times three. Nice. <laughs> there we yeah. go. Yeah, go Bruins. <laughs> I follow UCLA's athletics very closely. I go to the games as much as I can. As far as my current setup, when I graduated, I did not have a good, actionable job offer, and I didn't know what I'm going to do on July 1st. So sometime in May of 1993, when I was about to graduate, Dr. Bob Hale, who was my attending at the time, pulled me aside and said, Blood, come over to my office. Let's talk about your future. So I thought he was going to offer me a position in his practice, but instead he told me how to open my own practice. He literally made me take notes and told me who to call, where to buy my equipment, where to buy my chairs, where to buy my extra unit, where to buy my instruments. He gave me a to z list of things to do and how to go about opening practice. And so when I graduated, I stopped looking for a space. And within about a month, I found a space within about walking distance from my one-bedroom apartment in West L.A., and I signed the lease and I did some remodeling and I opened up my practice in December of 1993. I had no patients, I had no referrals. So what I did for the first few years, I was working for a couple of different dental clinics while trying to build my own practice. And it took me about four or five years of being what I call traveling oral surgeon before I was able to work full-time in my own practice. Just to step back for a second, there was a practice in the Valley that I was always wanted to be part of, but at that time, both surgeons were young or younger, and they did not have any room for me. 
So when one of them retired, I started talking to the second surgeon, and in 2015, I acquired the second practice in the Bali area of Los Angeles. So since 2015, I've been running both locations. For the first few years, the original doctor in the Bali office worked with me, and then he decided to retire about three, four years ago. I had an associate for about a year on and off, but that did not work out. So now I'm running both locations by myself. That sounds good. Sounds like you've had a lot of good experience starting up your own practice, working for other clinics. It's a lot of good experience with business. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good experience, but I learned a lot by making a lot of mistakes. And I think now looking back, it probably took me about 10 to 12 years to figure out what I was doing right, which is very few things, and what I was doing wrong, which is a lot of things. To kind of figure out who I am and what kind of practice I'd like to run, made a 180-degree turn in the way my practice is run, and took me about another four years to transition from the original way of practice to what I to how practice currently. What was the big change that you made? Well, stepping back for a second, when I graduated and finished my training, I was still in this, what I call, resident slash beast mode. Basically, get them in, get them out, do as many patients as I can in the shortest amount of time. And didn't know much about business, didn't know much about patient relationships, patient management. So I tried to fill my schedule as much as I can with anything and everything that just come through my door. And I also met one of the dentists who became my very good referring dentist, and he kind of reinforced this idea, let's get to, you just need to have a patient in the chair. doesn't matter what you do, as long as you're doing something, you're going to be successful. So within about five years or so, my schedule was full from eight to five nonstop. Just one patient after another, one patient after another. I was taking multiple insurances, I was taking other plans, and I thought I was pretty successful, and a few things happened. Not a single thing kind of opened up my eyes, but a number of events kind of opened up my eyes on how wrong I am by doing what I call the beast mode, you know, the nonstop surgery one after another. And when I realized what I was doing wrong, it took me about two, three years to kind of retool, took some courses on practice management, artist marketing, HR, and so on, and slowly kind of changed my practice from being very much insurance dependent, which now I'm completely insurance independent. I uh, spend my time with the patients. I see half as many patients right now as I used to see in the past. And financially, I'm a lot more successful now than I was at that time. Wow. And how is that the case? Because, you know, you think logically, if you're seeing more patients, twice as many, you make twice as much money. How are you becoming more financially successful by seeing fewer people? Well, you have to look not just at how many patients you see, but what is it your patient production and what kind of procedures you're doing. So when a patient comes in and you don't have time to sit down and spend time with them and explain to them what their needs and wants are, all you have time to is basically tell them, yes, you need to have four wisdom teeth taken out or you need to have extraction of tooth number 30. And you have to move on. You don't have time to sit down and establish a good patient-doctor relationship. And, of course, you are reimbursed by the insurance, and those rates are significantly lower than what I think is UCRs should be. Now that I retooled my practice, I spend a lot more time on my consultations. I have a chance to get to know my patients. I have a chance to explain to them what they need and why they need it. 
And of course, my fees now are completely independent of the insurance. So I can see half as many patients and make the same amount of money by charging my fees. So for example, what's better to see 10 patients and get $1,000 from each patient or to see five patients and charge them $2,000 each? So if you see five patients, you have more time to establish a good patient-doctor relationship, explain to them what their needs are, show them how much you care about them, mm-hmm. and they'll be more apt to pay your fees. Yeah, that sounds much better. It also seems just more enjoyable and also less risk because I feel like there's more risk when you're in the model of quick in and out and you don't take time to explain and build that relationship. You're more likely to have problems and get sued and all that stuff. I feel that a lot of lawsuits come out because of the poor communications with the patient. We all have complications. It's how you handle those complications will result, whether it's going to be resolved amicably or it will result in a lawsuit. It's a really good point. And are you focusing on any certain procedure? Is it mostly implants or wisdom teeth or what are you doing? When I started my practice, I was doing pretty much everything. I was doing trauma. I was doing orthognatic surgery. I was doing some pathology. Everything and anything that will come through my door. I kind of gave up orthognatic practice about, I would say, maybe 15 years ago because I realized I did not have enough volume to keep my skills sharp and to give the patients the services they need. So I also stopped taking calls from the hospitals because I felt like I was used and abused by the emergency department, seeing what they call cash patients, which means they have no means to pay for your services. And so now my practice, I would say about 60% dental implants and related procedures and about 40% dental violar, which is mostly wisdom teeth extractions. I do some pathology, although occasional jaw fracture, bread and butter, dental implants and wisdom teeth. Okay. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the things you've learned and ways you found success being in Beverly Hills, which is you know notoriously one of the most competitive areas in the country? I think I'm actually more successful in my valley practice than in Beverly Hills. My valley practice is actually about 10 miles from my office. It takes me about 12 minutes to get to my office. Beverly Hills practice is about uh, 24 miles from my home. It takes me about an hour, two hours, and 20 minutes to get to my office. So when I acquired the Valley practice, I was spending equal amount of times in both locations. When my former partner retired, I'm spending more time in the Valley practice than I do in Beverly Hills. But what is Beverly Hills or Valley? The key to success is, I think, the same. It's how you relate to your patients, number one, and number two, how you relate to your referring doctors. If you are likable with good personality, you can get away with having less than stellar business skills, let's put it this way. I think it's all about what I call now emotional intelligence. How likable you are to your referring doctors, how well you can serve the patient's needs, how well you can serve your patient's needs, that's what determines success. I think we all have very good clinical skills as we come out from the various training programs. We all can take out wisdom teeth very efficiently. We all can place implants. We all can fix a broken jaw. What makes us different from each other is our interpersonal skills, number one. Number two, probably our business skills. And number three, our location. 
So if you're like a guy who has good interpersonal skills, amazing business skills, and you're in the right location, you'll be successful. Yeah, that makes sense. What things did you learn over the years as far as how to communicate better with your patients? I think you have to sit down, eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, knee to knee, and have a conversation with them and really establish a good patient-doctor relationship. If you rush into the room uh, and have them open the mouth and tell them you need the full wisdom to taken out and walk out, that's not a good model to practice. I think if you're able to sit down and really show them how much you care about them and how much you have their best interests in mind, that will determine how successful you are. So it will allow you to offer them the treatment plan that you think will best suit them, and they'll probably will accept the treatment plan if they feel that you have the best interests in mind. Yeah, that makes sense. sense. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, what I used to do when I used to go to different offices taking out wisdom teeth, there was one office I worked at. When I saw it, it was, I was absolutely amazed. The office had 100 dental chairs, other 20 assistants, and they would schedule 10, 20 sets of wisdom teeth for me in the morning. And I would just jump from room to room, taking out wisdom teeth all day long. There was no time to even talk to the patients except to say, hello, my name is Dr. Pollock. I'll be taking out your wisdom teeth today. Now open wide. <laughs> wow. And during those two years when I practiced in that location, I had some problems because I had no way to have a proper follow-up and to slash proper relationship with my patients. So, of course, when something will go wrong, like it always does, you know, somebody has a swelling that lasts too long or somebody has a post-operative infection, they're not apt to give you a benefit of a doubt. Immediately, they assume that you did something wrong. Whereas now, in my practice, I usually have a chance to meet every patient, spend half an hour, 45 minutes, sometimes even an hour for consultation, make sure they're comfortable with me, I make sure I'm comfortable with them, and then we come up with a plan that I feel is, is appropriate and then schedule the procedure. And of course, very close follow-up, I see them frequently till they heal completely. I call every single patient at the end of the day to make sure they're doing okay, to make sure they have no questions, to make sure they understand my post-operative instructions. So very high-touch practice. Yeah, I mean, I think if you asked, you know, any oral surgeon, they would be probably say they would much prefer to work in the model where they see less patients, you know, and have more time and earn more money than more patients and less finances per patient. Because uh, it's just not very enjoyable when you're not connecting with your patients and able to communicate with them and people get more angry and it's harder to follow up when you do so many surgeries in a day, you know, to follow up with that many people is difficult. That's pretty awesome that you've established that practice model and are having success with it. I think patients have to understand that they have to feel and they have to see that you have their best interests in mind. You don't look at them as just, you know, a mouthful of money. I'll sometimes have patients come in sometimes to me for second opinions or third opinions and if I can figure out the way for them to spend less money by either placing less implants or doing something less than they would implant originally, they always feel that, uh, and I feel that I'm looking out for their best interests, not, and I'm not looking to maximize financial benefits of that procedure. Yeah, I totally agree. So, so important to convey that message that you have their best interests at heart. 
We all individuals and some oral surgeons will thrive in those situations like I'm in and some will feel more comfortable and working in a more fast-paced environment where they can see more patients. And also, if you look at today's situation where you have young graduates coming out with half a million, million dollar debt, how are they able to pay off of the debt, finally have a life, earn enough money to provide for themselves, provide for their families, and still be comfortable? And it takes sometimes years to establish a private practice. So even if you buy into a private practice, it takes you some time to get yourself established. Whereas if you go into what we call now corporate dentistry, you can make pretty good money from the start. And sometimes when you get into that routine of working very hard and seeing a lot of patients, you get accustomed to those certain financial benefits. It's very hard to get out of that situation. I met an oral surgeon who wanted to join my practice a few years ago. And he walks, he told me he goes to 12 to 15 different practices every month. And when we start talking about his financial compensation, he realized even if he works very hard in my practice, he's still not going to be able to make as much money as he's making right now doing what he's doing. So he has to make a decision. Does he want to go into private practice and have a little different lifestyle, maybe make a little bit less money versus keep doing what he's doing, which is going to 10, 12, 14 different offices every single month. I know you're working for PDS, correct? Yeah, currently that's what I'm doing, yeah. How do you find that? Is that something that you're comfortable doing or is it something that you find suits your personality better than being in private practice? You know, it's something that I am comfortable doing. It's taken a while to get comfortable uh, doing it. had to learn a lot of things and, you know, slow my schedule down and cut offices and only go to certain ones and everything. But so, no, where I'm at is, you know, comfortable, I think. I have plans to slow more down and do private practice, mostly because I would like to be in your situation where you're seeing fewer and spending more time per patient. But also, I would really like to build a practice with my younger brother, who's going to be graduating in a couple of years. And so we want to do a private practice together. I think that would be very rewarding. But it is a grind. I will say that it's a grind to go to many offices and to deal with so many different staff members and so much turnover. You know, it's it takes a lot of energy. I think having a well-trained team in your office that there every day and they know what your next move will be is very comfortable. I sometimes joke that my team members could read my mind. I don't have to say anything. They know what my next move will be. They know what I want. They would know how to set up every single procedure I do. I have some team members that have been with me for 20 plus years. It's so much more comfortable when you go to the same location, you know where every single instrument is. You know if you have a glitching computer, you know how to fix that. It is, I think it takes time to set this up. But I think at the end, your life is so much less stressful and you have a lot of stress in our profession as it is. So to minimize stress of everyday oral surgery by having a well-trained team, having predictable schedule, having predictable environment speaks a lot for itself. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because I was going to ask when you mentioned that you had had an associate and it didn't work out, what the reason was. So it sounds like it was just the compensation wasn't what the associate was expecting or why? 
a compensation was actually pretty good. Uh, my associate, I wanted to find somebody who is completely opposite of me so that associates can attract different referral base. So I hired a female oral surgeon fresh out of school on July 1st. I think she started on July 4th or 5th. And then about two weeks later, she told me she's pregnant. And so six months went by as she was trying to get herself established in my practice. And then she had a baby and stayed home for, I think, a couple of months. She came back and only wanted to work part-time. And I accommodated that. And she worked part-time for a few more months. And then she got pregnant again. And so she worked till she had her second child. And then after she had her second child, she decided to become a stay-at-home mom. Since then, I interviewed a number of oral surgeons, but I'm yet to find that right person that will fit my practice. The same in Grace, my son graduated down school on Sunday, and I think he will be starting oral surgery internship at LSU next week. After his wait, it's just kind of grinding out for maybe five or six more years. But I think ideally, I would like to have somebody join me now and then... When my son finishes his training, I would like to cut my hours and maybe three of us will practice together for maybe another two, three, four more years. And then I'll be joining other people in retirement, joining my former associate, former partner in retirement. Yeah, that's a good plan. That's great Just to be able to... the right person. Oh, yeah. So hard to find good personalities that mesh with yours. And I can imagine. I think personalities and also what I noticed, I was at the last Amos meeting in Nashville. And I go to mostly to meetings almost every year. And I noticed the famous booth where you have jobs wanted and oral surgeons wanted and positions available. There was a lot more ads for positions available versus people looking for positions. I think a lot of young oral surgeons coming out of training joined the ranks of proper dentistry because the compensation is so much better. Or they joined the larger group practices versus joining a single practitioner like I am. Interesting. Okay. That's my observation. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it's hard once you've started to earn at a certain amount to change course and start maybe take a hit in your income for a couple of years to try to build something up. I don't know. I mean, I think corporate dentistry has many challenges that probably a lot of new graduates don't understand. And it shouldn't be all just about the money for sure. I think it's a good idea for a new graduate to work in a corporate industry or work in a fast-paced environment for a year or two or three to kind of get the skills up, get your speed up, maybe even learn some basic business skills before they open up their own practice. I think what I did opening up my own practice from scratch, fresh out of my training, was probably one of the biggest mistakes of my life. And looking back, it's amazing that I survived and I succeeded because I knew nothing about business. I knew nothing about running any kind of business, more even oral surgery practice. I did not know what kind of team to hire. I did not know how to train them. My very first surgical assistant was somebody that my parents asked me to hire because she was a single mom who was basically doing house cleaning for various people. And she needed some kind of a job and she needed some kind of a training. So I hired her and I trained her to become a dental assistant. My first administrative person was a friend of a friend who was also a college graduate looking for a job. She knew how to say thank you for calling. How may I help you? 
but as far as scheduling or billing, or what's the difference between the partial bony or full bony when it comes to insurance billing? She didn't know. Neither did I. <laughs> Looking back, the first few years were just a disaster. It took me uh, several years to figure this out, you know, how to hire, how to bill, how to deal with insurances, you know, how to even talk to the patients. Who knows how my life would have turned out if I would have joined a successful practice. But I think trial by fire and learning from my own mistakes made me who I am today. That's good. And I'm sure it was rewarding to build something by yourself from scratch to be able to look back and say, you know, this was something I built. You know, it was rewarding, but I tell you, I remember this specific time where I thought I was so successful. I was doing so well financially. I'm seeing so many patients. Happenstance. I was at the Amos meeting and I walked in on a lecture. I think his name is Bauer. He's a consulting company out of Ohio, I believe. And they talked about benchmarking in oral surgery. Do you know the guys I'm talking about? You said it's Bauer. What was their name again? Bauer, they consult with oral surgeons and pulmonologists. Oh, okay. Very well. So and they talked about benchmarking, how much money you should produce per hour, how much you should produce per oral surgeon, how many team members you should have for every 100,000 production and so on. And when I looked at those numbers, I thought I was very successful. I realized that I'm not successful. I realized I'm actually well below average. <laughs> and that was one of the turning points of how I practiced. Interesting. So did you work with them to kind of fine tune your practice or what did you end up doing? So that was one of the kind of events that kind of opened up my eyes. There were a few other events that opened up my eyes. And then I realized I have to make a change because I was getting burned out. I was working very hard, nine to five nonstop. I'll have surgeries starting at eight o'clock and they'll intermix surgeries, post-ops, consults all day long. I'll be doing wisdom till five o'clock in the afternoon because they decided they they wanted to come in. And I realized that this has to stop. And with several events, that lecture was one of those events when I realized I have to make a change. And so I started making the changes slowly. One of the first things I did is I I signed up with Roger Levine Consulting. And I took the practice management course, which lasted a year. That started my journey to where I am today. I worked with other consultants, but Roger Levine was definitely a, a turning point for my practice. I don't know if he's still doing that, but he used to do before, but that was an eye-opening experience for me. That's great. I know the Levine Group, and I've heard some of their lectures, and they, and I have friends who've worked with them, and it seems very productive. It seems like they're great at helping people really kind of figure out the business aspect. At that time, they have several different programs. They had practice management, and they talked about setting up different systems for the practice. They have another program for practice marketing. And at that time, they held an implant program. Each one lasted about a year. So it took two, three years to go through all the programs. And then after that, I spent another few years with them as their consultant, as they would come into my office as a consultant and look things over and just make certain changes. I think I worked with them all together for about five, six years. Then I was on my own for a few more years. And then I had another consultant. I think it's always good to have a consultant or at least have a mentor that can kind of look at you at your practice without any bias, without any kind of personal involvement and emotional involvement in your practice and give you a true opinion of what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've heard that from other practitioners before, how important it is to have that third party kind of helping you out. What are two or three of the best things you learned from the Levine group? Two or three best things. I think 
the way you deal with your patients. You cannot just, you know, run them through the office as if it's a mill, you know, one after another. You really have to establish a good doctor-patient relationship, number one, but also very important to establish a good relationship with your referrals. They call it referral-based marketing. And the amount of time you spend with your referrals and how much service you can give them will be proportional to how much referrals you're going to get from them. That's probably the biggest lesson. Probably the second biggest lesson is how to hire the right people for your practice. How to write an enticing ad, how to interview, how to screen the applicants, and how to hire the right person. I always used to think that hiring somebody with most experience makes no sense. Because of the Levine Group, I realized you hire for the personality and you can train them. It's very hard to, if you hire somebody just because they have experience, the experience that training may not match with your expectations and you, the way your practice is running. So that's probably the two biggest lessons I learned from Levine. Yeah, that's a really interesting that you say that because I've talked to several people on the podcast and just outside of the podcast who say similar things that the more experienced they are, the more they prefer to hire for the personality as opposed to the experience. And that if they have someone who they mesh with from a personality standpoint and maybe an ethical and kind of work ethic standpoint, then it's much better just to go with that over experience, even if it's someone with zero experience. My office manager, who has been with me for 23 years now, I hired her when she was 19 years old. During those years, she took all those courses with me. She also got a bachelor's degree in healthcare administration. Two years ago, she got her master's degree in healthcare administration. She's my right hand. She can run multiple block operation, but she chose to run my practice. My best surgical assistant, I hired her when she was in her 20s zero oral surgery experience and now she is being indispensable in my surgical team. I have a number of other people in my office who have been with me for seven, eight, nine years who came to me with very little almost no experience. When you train them the way you want them to do certain things, we work very well together. Whereas I had people who I hired because they had so much experience and uh, we just did not work together very well because they worked for somebody else for that many years. They learned how to do things their way, which may not be the same way I do things. So people I hired who had a lot of experience usually did not work out in my practice. That's good to know and good to see that experience that you have. One thing I have to ask you, because you work in Beverly Hills, I know everyone around the country is concerned about how their smile looks and things like this, but I think Beverly Hills in particular, there's probably lots of pressure to make things look very cosmetically appealing. Do you do anterior implants? And if so, how do you navigate that with very high demanding patients? I do a lot of anterior implants. As a matter of fact, I do a lot of immediate placement, immediate temporization anterior implants. That's kind of, I build my name in my practice on doing immediate placements starting about 15, 18 years ago. Whether they're in Beverly Hills or anywhere else in the country, they want to make sure that the front teeth look good. So the key for the good-looking anterior implant is the placement, number one, and number two, who is your restorative team is. You can place the best implant in a great position, but if the restorative doctor skills are not up to par or the lab that they use is not up to par, 
to help you get good results. That brings to mind a case that happened maybe about 10 years ago. I'm going to give you the brief story. I placed eight and nine implants as immediate placement in the immediate tempers, and I used the lab to do my tempers. And so I took out eight and nine that were failing, and both had endoposts and crowns, you know, the type of teeth with significant recession. Took the teeth out, placed immediate implants, placed immediate tempers, let it heal, and checked to make sure they healed properly and sent you back to your restorative dentist for the final restorations. And I said, you know, if you're going to be doing eight to nine crowns, maybe it's a good idea for you to consider doing veneers on teeth number six through 11, because they kind of discolored, they have some crack lines, maybe it'll look better if you do veneers on the other anterior teeth. So she goes away and then she comes back about three, four, five months later and she comes to my office crying. And I go, what's wrong? She, Why are you crying? She goes, look at my teeth. <laughs> and she smiled. And she goes, your temperatures look better than those finals. And she was right. So I had to deal with the situation on how to basically redo the two implant crowns and how to do the abuse she got. Oh, jeez. Wow. It's all about team. Yeah. Yep, that's a really good point. How do you ensure that your part is done correctly? Do you do guided things or how do you do that? I used to do a lot of guided. I don't do it as much. After doing several thousand implants like that, I know kind of the position I want to be in. I will do guided in certain cases. I had a case just last week on a 19-year-old, almost 20-year-old now. She lost 8, 9, and 10 when she was 10 years old in a biking accident. So she had flipper for many years, she had braces. Of course, she had significant alveolar atrophy, so I had to craft it. And I kind of nursed her along. I didn't want to place the implants when she was younger. I wanted her to be in 20s. So now that she's 20 years old, I placed the implants last week. Of course, I didn't guide it because I want to make sure I nailed the position just perfectly. Not only the position, but also the depth of the implants. I did a virtual plan. I scanned. I took the software, made sure that position is perfect, added by my storage doctor, added by my lab, making sure that everybody is happy. So those type of cases, I will do guided. Routine, eight, nine implants, I probably will do freehand. I was, I've been looking at Claromav and Robert and what's it, XNAV, on and off for the last couple of years. I have a couple of friends who have those systems, and they told me, they all told me the same thing, they use it frequently for the first six months. And after about six months, they'll use it occasionally. And it usually sits in the corner in the office collecting dust. Interesting. I've heard that before as well. I really, okay, I came that close to buying XNAV and this something, something stopped me. Yeah, you definitely wanna, don't want to buy something that's just going to collect dust. You got to make sure it's really going to be useful for you. It's a pretty significant expense. And one of the surgeons I know has a Yomi Robert in his office. And I was talking to him. He goes, yeah, I need to have two of them because I could use them all the time. So why don't you use it all the time? Well, it takes me 45 minutes to an hour to set it up. And my office is just too fast-paced. I don't have time to set it up. So what was the point of buying it? $120,000 unit. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. Wow. 
that's good to hear. Probably good to talk to people before you buy such an expensive unit. The dynasty I work with has the x knob in his office, and he tells me he uses it maybe once a month now at most. Really? Okay. But the next question is, you know, how do you make sure that your referring doctors are doing a good job with their aesthetic restorations and things like that? Do you work with them? Do you do any type of training? At this point in my practice, most of my referring doctors are actually excellent. They all use good labs. They all uh, very conscientious. They all have good technique. So I don't have to worry about that too much. The younger doctors I work with, they're very open to suggestions and open to my ideas if I need to kind of nudge them maybe to a different lab. I think lab has a lot to do with the final result. When you place an implant, it's easy to take an impression. How do you make sure that the crown is beautiful? The incisor ledge looks translucent, that the line angles look in the correct position. The contour of the crown is perfect. That's all lab. The key is, you know, that your doctor uses a good lab. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's a really good point you bring up. I think we probably should get somebody from a lab on the podcast just to talk about, you know, how they get good at what they do. But I've worked with a number of different labs and now I stick with one that I'm more happy with. But yeah, sometimes it's hard to find a good lab. I used to have my GPs do the temporaries on the immediately placed implants. And then I realized that after a few problems and a few failures, I realized I have to take this into my own hands just to make sure that the contours are correct, make sure there's no interproximal contacts, make sure there's no occlusal contacts, make sure there's no overhangs. And once I start doing it myself, I start having a lot less problems. There are all kinds of dentists out there. There are all kinds of surgeons out there. Some of us are more detail-oriented, let's put it this way, than others. Some of us have high expectations than others. So it's all working and managing different personalities and making sure you don't offend somebody by saying something that they don't want to hear. Right. (laughs) I still have doctors that do not want to take the implant-level impression. So they asked me to take an implant level impression, send the impression to them. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> How do you handle that? <laughs> oh, wow. And do you do it when they ask you to do that? Or do you say, no, you need to? Well, it's a very touchy subject. I say, why don't you come to my office? I'll help you take an implant. We'll do it together. So we do it a few times together and then they go on their own. And then a few months later, they say, can you do this together again? So if they send you patients, why would you want to say no? I would rather be part of the solution than be part of the problem. And if I'm there helping them, less chance of things going wrong. It's all how you manage those referrals. If they feel that you have their back and you feel that you have the referrals best interest in mind, they're going to continue referring to you. That's a really good point. I mean, you got to take time with them just like you got to do with your patients and make sure that they feel comfortable with you and your style. I think looking back, success of a neurosurgeon, as much as we like to be independent of our referrals, I think majority of us in private practice are very much dependent on our referrals. And your people management skills are very important, not just in how you run your team, but also how you manage your referrals. Really, really good point. And then another question for you is, 
you've been practicing for many years and sounds like you have a good strategy to transition, you know, because you have your son and things going like that. But what recommendations do you have for other doctors who are getting older in their career and trying to figure out how to work with associates and find someone to buy their practice and all that stuff? I wish I know the answer. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. I tell you, I've been looking for an associate or par- actually I'm looking for a partner, not an associate. I want somebody to come in and have an interest in my practice, not just come in and uh, punch the clock from nine to five and collect a paycheck. Somebody who is interested in settling and having a family and raising a family in my neighborhood so that can work with me. I don't want to hire a gun. I want somebody who is involved. So finding the right person who wants to be aware of my practice is probably the biggest challenge, which brings us to another point. What do you do when you finish your training? Do you join military? Do you go to private practice? Do you join corporate dentistry ranks? I think it takes some time to figure that all out. You have to know who you are and what makes you happy. That's number one. And number two is, where do you want to live? Do you want to live in a big city? Or do you want to be in a smaller town? And I think each location has advantages and disadvantages. But really having a clear mind of who you are and where you want to be, that's the first questions you have to answer when you finish your training and finish your one with your life, the rest of your life. I think when I was listening to your podcast, somebody was saying that, you know, how throughout our training we have those goals, finish college, finish dental school, finish the first year of residency, finish your surgery rotation. Now that you're done with all this, now it's the rest of your life. How do you figure that out? Not easy. But I think like you're saying, you really need to prioritize what matters to you. Usually it's with your spouse or, you know, maybe a significant other. But it's very important, I think, probably first and foremost, to figure out where you want to be and what type of relationship you want to have, you know, with your patients and all that first probably should be considered maybe before just how much money am I going to make? Because a lot of people can get into unfortunate momentum where they just think about the money and now they're getting stuck in a place they don't want to live and a job they don't like working at. And it's very hard to switch course sometimes when you've been doing it for many years. I think at the end, if you have a fashion, we're all going to make a decent living. None of us going to be scraping by and starving, you know, and trying to figure out how we're going to feed our family. We're all blessed by choosing probably what I consider one of the best professions in the world. We're all going to be financially successful. What's a few hundred thousand dollars? What's a few million dollars at the end, you know? Are you happy where you are? Are you happy in your situation? Are you happy in the place you're living? If you like going to theater and going to museums, why would you want to practice in the middle of nowhere? If you're more outdoorsy type and you like hiking and biking and hunting and fishing, why would you want to go to Manhattan? So you really have to figure out who you are and what makes you happy, what makes your family happy. That's, I think, number one priority. Then you can decide how you want to practice. That's a really good point. Yeah, really good to have these discussions with somebody like you who's been experienced it because so many people are trying to figure it out, you know, without having gone down the road and they're just guessing, you know, well, maybe I'd like this job or that place or this. There are so many resources available to us right now. You could sit down and spend a couple hours on the computer and you figure out 
uh, demographics, the what makes this community tick? You know, is this a good fit for you? Versus 20, 30 years ago, it took a lot of time and effort to figure all that out. When I opened up my practice, I didn't even know what demographics were. You know? I thought if I opened up enough, because it was within walking distance of my one-bedroom apartment that I lived when I was a resident, tells you I did not put much thought about demographics or where yeah. I want to be. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. There's whole companies now that are focused just on the demographics that will help exactly. you do all this research. Not you. There's this guy, his name is Scott McDonald. I think his website is Dr. Demographics. I met him a few times. I think you know who he is. And he, you can talk to him and he'll give you an idea. He'll ask you what you want and he'll give you some ideas of where you should be. Yeah, that's so important to talk to someone like that before... Certainly starting from scratch, but even too, if you're considering joining a practice to see what type of growth that practice can be expected to have and all that stuff. I think starting from scratch still has its merits if you're in the right location. The key is to find the right location. And if you're starting from scratch, you better have some business acumen and at least maybe have some people you can talk to and give you some good advice when it comes to running the practice on how to hire, how to fire, how to set up systems and so on how to set up even computer network. That's another, <laughs> that's another discussion. Whole different topic. I mean, what are your thoughts on, because we've debated this on the podcast, but if you're starting from scratch, maybe working half-time in your brand new office and part-time with whatever corporate or other groups, or do you think it's better just to do full-time with your scratch practice? If you have financial means to start your private practice from scratch and be there full-time, that's kind of unusual. We all need to make some kind of a living and pay our expenses. So what I see a lot of people doing, what I did is I worked part-time in my private practice and part-time working for somebody else. But there'll come the time where you have to give up that traveling job and work in your practice because you have to be available when the patient calls you have to be available when your GP calls, whether it's 8 in the morning or 5 in the afternoon. I remember when I used to start, you know, 4.30 Friday afternoon, broken root tip, you know, can you see them right now? You, you have to be available. You have, you have dinner reservations with your wife. You call your wife, you apologize and say, you know, honey, I'm going to have to stay here a little longer. And you ask your assistant to stay a little longer to see that root tip that sometimes you end up taking out no charge because it's a good referral. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's all about servicing your referrals and servicing your patients. Well, good. That gives me lots of good food for thought. And I think our listeners too appreciate you taking the time. Are there any other words of wisdom you have for maybe younger people? Words of wisdom. Take as many business courses as you can handle. Learn how to communicate. The way you communicate with your referring doctors, with your patients, will determine how successful you will be. You all know how to cut wisdom teeth. You all know how to screw an implant. We all can fix a broken jaw. It's our emotional intelligence that makes the difference. Yeah, I love that. All right, it's time for the rapid fire questions. First question is, what is the best book you've read in the past year? I was anticipating that question. I'm actually really listening to a book that I really enjoyed, and I think it's the second time I'm listening to it. It's called Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. He actually wrote three books, but that's his first one, and that's the one I enjoyed most. 
a lot of interesting points about why we are who we are as humans. Okay, good. I'll add that to my list of books to read. Excellent. Next question is... Listen to it. Should I <laughs> listen, listen to it? Audiobook. I, okay. I, when I drive to Beverly Hills, that's what I do. Okay. Listen to books. I'll listen. Okay. The next question is, what non-oral surgery thing do you do in your life that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? I think one actual skill is I do landscape photography. So learning how to use the camera, how to take a picture, because I take a lot of pictures in my practice. I photograph pretty much every patient, almost every patient that I deal with when it comes to anterior implants, bone grafting, full arch implants. I document, I take a lot of pictures. So my photography skills come into play every day. Nice. Okay. I do play golf, but it does not help my oral surgery practice. <laughs> yeah. Next question is what forceps do you use for tooth number 14? I don't usually use forceps that much. I use uh, periotoms. I, uh, if it's a multi-rooted tooth, like number 14, unless it's really periodontally involved and mobile, I will section the crown, section the roots, and then elevate the roots individually to preserve as much bone as I can. I feel that if you use forceps, you can actually break the buckle plate very easily. And I want to avoid that. So in case I need to place implants later. Actually, I don't use forceps very much at all, but the forceps I have on every single set. And by the way, talking about advice to younger oral surgeons, I've seen some people have like 20 elevators and five forceps on every extraction set. That's a lot of instruments, number one, that you have to buy and a lot of instruments for your team to clean. So try to minimize the number of instruments you use. So basically my setup is I have two elevators, 77R and Cogsville B, and forcep called 62F. You know what F stands for? It stands for Felsenfeld. Felsenfeld, oh, okay. Felsenfeld. Nice. <laughs> so 62F, forcep, I was introduced to 62F, forcep by Dr. Felsenfeld in my training. I think it's a very good universal forcep. It's on my every tray with two elevators and I use it to basically pick up the truth and sometimes to once the tooth is laxated to kind of deliver the truth. Dr. Felsen, I hope he doesn't listen to this because he'll be depressed that I didn't know that the F is for Felsenfeld. I think you trained at UCLA, right? I did, yes. So you remember Felsenfeld, you remember Hargis? I took out my first tooth as a dental student was Dr. Hargis. And for people who don't know, Dr. Hargis was a fixture at UCLA Dental School and Oral Surgery Department for many, many years. And a lot of people went through uh, his training. So he used to tell me, Vlad, if it takes you more than five minutes to take a tooth out, you have to stop and think about what you're doing wrong. No tooth should take you more than five minutes to remove. And those words of wisdom stayed with me for all those years. But at, at the end, it's not the race. It's a skill. It takes me more than a few minutes to take one tooth versus the other. It's the side. What is your all-time favorite movie? My favorite movie. You know, I don't watch movies very much, but a few movies that really kind of make you think. And believe it or not, I'm a big fan of sci-fi. And the very first time I watched the movie called Matrix, that blew me away, that whole idea of a virtual universe. You know, if you read the uh, latest physics and scientific literature, some people say we are living in a virtual world, which, you know, I have to tell you this story, talking about physics and virtual world. One of the anesthesiologists I work with used to date a physics professor at Caltech. 
And he happened to be Russian like I am. And one day he picked up after the surgery we were doing. And I was very fascinated by what he was doing. And he is a theoretical physicist. So in this talk, and I go, what does a theoretical physicist do all day? How do you do your job? Like I come to the office, I see patients, I make them numb, I take the tooth out, I place an implant. What is it that you do as a theoretical physicist? You know what he said? I just come to my office, I get into my chair, and I think. That's it? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I come to my office, I sit in my chair, and I think. Oh, my gosh. I picked the wrong profession, I think. I should have been just thinking about stuff. It's too hard to actually do stuff. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you know, everybody chooses what the best is. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. And the last question is, what is your favorite quote? My favorite quote. I don't know what's the quote. I don't know who said that. But I always say to myself and to my children, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. So give it a hundred. if you do something, give it a 100% effort. Don't do something half-ass. Well, that's been very inspiring, and I really appreciate you sharing your experience, Vlad. You're an awesome guy. Thank you for inviting me. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. Yes, for sure. If there are listeners who have questions for you based on what you said, are you okay if they reach out to you? Sure. My email is very simple. My first name initial, which is D, my last name, Palikov, at synergyoms.com. The name of my office is Synergy Dental Implant and Oral Surgery Center, and my website is synergyomas.com. So very simple. Excellent. Thank you so much. Let's keep in touch. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. For more information on these podcasts, please visit everydayoralsurgery.com. I would love it if you would also connect with us on Instagram and Facebook through our Everyday Oral Surgery pages. Also, if you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or you can text or call me at 720-441-6059. If you have any topics that you'd like to hear discussed on this podcast or feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, also please call or email me. I've found many of our interviewees through people contacting me after listening, and for that I am supremely grateful. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.